studio with Michael Card. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition. Why am I always the first voice? You should open this program. I think if you if you compare the sounds of our two voices, oh, stop it. it's really clear why you should be stop the first it. voice. It's really clear why I don't sing on uh. the program, too. So. <laughs> Michael, welcome to your own program. I guess I can say that. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks, Wayne. <laughs> Nancy Guthrie will be here later in the program, and we always enjoy these conversations with Nancy, although it's been a while. It has been a while, and she's been uh, at at work, oh, you know, yeah. delving into the scriptures and helping yep. hurting people and uh, doing her thing. And I'm excited that in a few moments, we're going to listen to a recording made of you teaching on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, it's it tends to be sort of an inspiring place to teach. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, especially when you're teaching on, on a passage that happened where you are. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, I've seen photos of you on, on the boat there yeah. with, with groups as you go over. Yeah. It looks, it looks inspiring. Well, if you've been to Israel, you've been on the Jesus boat that goes across. You know, I haven't, no. Well, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And, so, and, and, and for me, it's not about collecting chill bumps. It's just about getting in your head, you know, the shape of the contours of the mountains and how big the lake is. And and when you get the feeling for how, how, how long it takes to go from – you know, Capernaum across to uh, where the gathering demoniac was or that sort of thing. It's it's important to have that in your head. Has it been placid waters when you've been there? Uh, with one exception. One, one time a storm blew up and you okay. understand, you understand. okay, this, this can happen. They can blow down. Well, you're going to take us to Mark 5. Yes. Talk about the storm on the land and sea. And a very different kind of storm. Though. Right, right. And that teaching coming up in just a moment here. From Michael Card on this week's edition of In the Studio. But let's start appropriately enough with Sea of Souls. Uh, you're playing banjo on this. I'm playing banjo. I think it's Pat Flynn playing guitar. All right. And, uh, yeah, this is just trying to engage with this text with the imagination and, and make some sense out of it. This was recorded in studio some time ago, Sea of Souls. The Fisher King, our rendezvous Upon the Sea of Souls Upon the Sea of Souls We ride the tides of time And Jesus shouts, Behold You stand beside the Sea of Souls Behind to follow him so I could find A way to cast a different line Upon the sea of souls Upon the sea of souls We ride the tides of time And Jesus shouts, Behold You stand beside a sea of souls
Um, I, I picked this passage because we're standing beside the lake where this happened. And uh, this illustrates a couple of fundamental principles. The, the most fundamental is basically read big blocks of scripture. You know, it is not necessarily more spiritual to read one phrase and meditate and all that. That's, that's sort of our impression. Read big blocks, read whole books. Uh, and you'll see structure, because we don't just listen to the words of, of a book, we listen to the, the structure of a book. For example, Mark, you know, verse 1 of Mark is the table of contents for the Gospel. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that's section 1, uh, the Son of God, that's section 2. Section 1 ends when Peter confesses he's the Christ. Section 2 ends when a Roman centurion says, surely this man is the Son of God. So verse 1 is the table of contents. And if you don't listen to the whole book, you, you'll miss that. Um, and this is a story, uh, the story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee and the gathering demoniac. And this was a big point that Bill, Bill liked to make. They're really one story. You can't understand one in isolation from the other. The two stories are really related. And that's what I want to do, just briefly look at them and see how, uh, how they sort of help interpret each other. Uh, so verse 35, uh, 435. On that day, when evening had come, he told them. Now, if, you, if you've read a, the whole chapter 4, you know that he's been teaching all day long. Okay, He's been dealing with the crowds and teaching all day long, and he is he's tired. He's exhausted. So that I, I don't really know that unless I've listened to the, all, all of the chapter. So on that day, when evening came, uh, he told them, let's cross over to the other side so and it was you know not far from here that this happened we're on the northern end of the lake now he spends most of his time crisscrossing the north the northern end of the lake and in mark he's trying to get away from the crowds have a boat ready so the people don't push me into the lake he says uh, he doesn't teach in a boat because the acoustics are better you know that's what we've <laughs> preached for years he, he teaches from a boat so he doesn't get pushed into the water because we read other places where they're crowding him and they want to touch him and uh, that sort of thing. So let's cross over to the other side. So they left the crowd, which is what he's mostly doing in Mark, and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm. Now Mark is not a terribly poetic person, but this is a fairly poetic passage because it's, 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 uh, it's based around three uh, constructions and that great windstorm is the first one. Mega, right, Megamart, right, big. Animu, uh, uh, the thing that measures wind is an anemometer. So, Mega Animu, big, big wind, great wind. And in the passage, there's a great wind, then there's a great calm, and then there's a great fear. And the point of, of and this is Peter remembering the story, the point of the story is, in Mark's gospel, they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of Jesus. And, and I'll show you how that works, which I think is really fascinating. So a mega animu, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat. Hopefully that won't happen to us today. So that the boat was already being swamped. And uh, we'll see, it was a pretty big boat. Uh, he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And this is a cushion that was kept in the stern. The guy who's steering the boat sits on this cushion. And so the person who should be steering the boat is asleep. That's not good, right? That's not good. Um, so they woke him up and they said, Teacher, uh, and you never say this to Jesus, don't you care? If anybody cares, he does. Don't you care that we're going to die? Now I suggest to you, these men, that these men know this lake, they've been on it their whole lives, they've never seen a storm like this. That's, that's the point. This storm is a demonic attack. Jesus is going to speak to the storm the same words that he speaks to the demon-possessed man in chapter 1. So, see if this makes sense to you. Huh? Uh, no, in chapter 1, Jesus says to the demon-possessed man, be muzzled. Yeah, 125 is when he says that. Okay? So, um, he got up, and I picture him, you know, kind of going, oh, man, you know, I was sleeping. He, get, he, I get, he got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea... And a good translation is, be muzzled. That's the one that Bill liked. Be muzzled. And again, that's what he tells the demon-possessed man in one, uh, 125. Um, be muzzled. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
So we have a great wind, a great calm, right? Then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus, Jesus is sort of in a completely different place. I mean, I'm with the disciples, right? How can you, so what is wrong with you, you know? But uh, he just showed that he has power over, you know, over the storm. And then uh, CSB, which is clearly the greatest translation that's ever been done, uh, says, and they were terrified, but a better translation is, and there was a great fear. They were afraid of Jesus and ask one another who then is this God who is this guy now they've already been with him for a while but he he's he's amazing them they uh, so they were and they were terrified and asked one another who is this then even the wind and the sea obey him and now unfortunately in Mark there's a chapter break in Luke there's a genealogy there's usually a chapter break here but um, again like Bill would say this is one story um, so they came to the other side of the sea, to the regions of the Gerasenes, and we'll, we'll show you that later. As soon as he, got, as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now this guy is the poster child for demonic possession. He's the poster child. Every, uh, in the Talmud, everything that's listed, every, every feature of demonic possession, this guy demonstrates. Okay? So let's look at it. Uh, first of all, he lived in the tombs, which is the most unclean place you can be because there's dead bodies there, right? So he lived in the tombs. Um, no one was able to restrain him. One of the signs of demonic possession is extraordinary strength. Uh, not even with a chain, because he has often been bound with shackles and chains, but he'd torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. So unusual strength. No one was strong enough to, to uh, subdue him. Day and night, uh, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Now, it's like a like a dog almost banging at the moon. I mean, amongst the two, it's a, it's a Frankenstein movie. I mean, you know, he's, he's, um, he, and, he, and he cuts himself with stones, which in First, uh, First Kings 18 is what the worshipers of Baal do. So the self-mutilation is another part of demonic, you know, demonic worship. I'm sorry, what did you compare that to? Mm. Frankenstein. No, no. <laughs> it's uh, the cutting. Uh, yeah, first, in 1 first Kings 18, the prophets of Baal cut themselves with stone. That's 1 Kings 18, 28. So when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? And consistently in, in uh, the Gospels, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. Right, they they recognize his dignity. They recognize his authority, and he uses. If there's a crowd there, Jesus will always say, "Be quiet," because he doesn't want the confession of who he is coming from the mouths of, of demons. Obviously, but the de I mean, James says the demons know who he is. Right, they know who he is. So, what do you have to do with me? I beg, uh, I beg you before God, don't torment me, uh, for he had told him, "Come out of this man, you unclean spirit." And I suggest to you, as Bill, Bill would suggest to you, one of the reasons this guy is so afraid is that the, there has been a demonic attack on the, on the sea. The demons have uh, tried to kill Jesus, kill them all. They've got them all in one boat. I'm going you know, to end the ministry right here. So this is payback. Mm. So Jesus shows up on this, and they're, oh, don't, don't destroy us. And, and in a minute, what's going to happen? There's going to be 2,000 pigs floating on, you know, on the water. So Jesus says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, which is a Roman military term. A legion isn't a thousand, it's from four to six thousand. And that actually changes over time because the, the emperor would decide how big a legion is. So the range is generally from four to six thousand, but we know they're two thousand pigs. So. so my name is Legion, he answered him, because we, my name, singular is, but we, so there's that confusion. confusion. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Large herd of pigs was there, so we know it was on the other side of the lake, right? The Decapolis side, the pagan side. No herds of pigs over here. Uh, the demons begged him, send us into the pigs so that we may enter, enter them. And notice they have to get permission. You know, it's like the throne room scene in Job, where Satan has to get permission from God, to touch Job, right? Because God, God is absolutely sovereign. So, uh, does God cause suffering? No. Uh, does he allow it? Yeah. So the problem is still there in explaining human suffering. Because he's got, you know. And by the way, the biblical answer to that question is don't ask that question. 
you know, don't go there, right? So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and into the pigs, the herd, about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And we'll show you the only place uh, in the northern part of the lake where the hills actually go right into the sea. David will show you that. Uh, the men who tended them ran off and reported in the town and countryside and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who'd been demon possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they know this guy. Some of, maybe some of the people who try to tie him up or wait a minute, is that? Yeah, that's him, you know, yikes. Um, and in the same sense, the, the disciples were afraid of the storm. The, the, the Gadarenes are afraid of Jesus. Right, we're going to see in a minute they're going to ask him to leave because they're afraid of him. Um, they began to beg him to leave their region. There it is. So the people are afraid of Jesus. We don't think of people being afraid, but he, he has this, uh, Bill called it a disturbing presence. You know, it's not always just the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He disturbed people. You know, you've got absolute authority. I mean, what do you do with that? Someone who speaks to the weather and it obeys. Someone who, who delivers people that no one else can deliver. Um, that's not a warm, fuzzy Jesus that, you know, the Sunday school Jesus that a lot of us know. He's, he could be scary. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. The principle here is Jesus does not accept volunteers, right? He calls followers. There are other places where people volunteer and Jesus sort of, you know, I'll, I'll go with you anywhere you go. Well, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He always sort of dissuades people. So, no, he doesn't accept volunteers. He calls followers. And think about it. This is the guy you want. If I'm trying to, you know, sell lots of records, this is the guy I want. Here, here are the chains that, he, that were broken. Here he is in his right mind, you know. <laughs> Come be part of our thing. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Uh, that's not what he's doing. In fact, usually in Mark, when he does a miracle, what does he do? He says, don't tell anybody I did that. Now, this is one exception because he's in a Gentile area. But one of them uh, used to be a mystery of Mark. I don't think it's a mystery. But one of the interesting things of Mark is that he usually says, please don't tell anybody I did this. And of course, they always tell. How can you not tell? And a few verses later, you'll see that there are so many people coming and going that Jesus and the disciples can't eat. That's said twice in chapter 3 and chapter 6. That's when his mother decides he's out of his mind because he's not eating anymore. Because he's just covered up with people. That's the picture in Mark. He's just, you know, inundated with people. So he begs with Jesus, please let me go with you. And Jesus, But Jesus would not let him. Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you. So that's, that's, an, uh, that's an exception to the rule. And if you're reading large blocks and you're really listening to the text, you go, hmm, that's not what he usually does. Right? Um, Mark, Mark has a couple of those that are really significant. Um, what the Lord has done for you and how he has had chesed. He's shown you mercy. This man has no right to expect anything from Jesus. Right? What does he get? A second chance? No, he gets everything. He gets everything. He hadn't just healed his body, he's healed his life. Um, so he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis uh, how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. That sounds like Luke, but it's Mark. They were all amazed. So I, I, I just want to encourage you, read big blocks of Scripture. Um, yeah, read big blocks of scripture. That's 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 a pretty simple thing. Any any observations? Did were the villagers also wanting Jesus to leave because of the economic loss that he? We don't know. I think that's a pretty good guess. I mean, he just wiped out the local economy in one sense. But I, I think that the 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 heart of the issue is they're really afraid of someone who has this kind of authority. I've read uh, the term amazed was used as a it wasn't uh, like like all like oh wow this is really cool all uh, but uh -huh. like, oh, like I'm really scared of this kind of power. yeah well I I, I don't know if there's seven different words that are translated amaze and one of them is phobu the word that we get fear from okay. um, so and I'm not sure if this is phobu or not but but uh, yeah amaze isn't just you know where the word amaze comes from it's the feeling you get when you are cast into a maze. You are amazed. That's where that word comes from. But um, yeah, there's a but there's a big range of because Greeks like that, right? There's like seven words for 
you know, one feeling. And, and you're right, one of those is fear. I'm not sure if this is phobo, phobo or not, but um, I'll look it up. I should know that. Mark uses the same one quite a few times. He does? Yeah. Well, Luke uses... He says it like five or six different times, and I'm pretty sure it's... It's Fobu. I think it's yeah. inflicting a concept of, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Well, Luke, Luke, which I call the gospel of amazement, uses all seven words, and he usually uses two in the same sentence. They were amazed and astonished. When you hear that, you know that's Luke. That's, his, that's what his language sounds like. What does that say? That means that the guy who talks to people 30 years after the event are still amazed. They're still amazed, yeah. But, uh, you know, again, the, sim the simple thing I want to, I mean, there are a lot of interesting details, but the simple thing I want to illustrate is read big blocks of Scripture and listen to the structure. Um, don't ignore the chapter breaks. We have readers' Bibles now that don't have any chapters or verse divisions, and those are pretty cool. I mean, I suggest you try one of those because what you find you what you don't realize you're doing as you're reading is you're counting. When I'm reading, I'm counting. Well, there's verse 11. Okay, here could you know, 30s the end of the chapter. Okay, 15 more to go. You know that kind of thing. You're gonna. And when you get a reader's Bible, you don't do that. You're just reading the text. And, and the chapters and verse are 12th century. They're not part of Holy Scripture, so you're not a heretic if you, if you ignore those. Through the paragraphs of prophets In their fiery words and rhymes In the pages of the patriarchs We can read on every line commandments and of all he undertook that before we called he answered us in the pages of the book it is the key it is the door more than ink and cloth and page he's wine preserved in blood and tears to speak to each new age say that Shanoa Alamu on the violin there That's so right. beautifully played. Yeah, you can always tell it's her. She has a special sound. Yeah. She's been in this studio where we sit right now. Yeah. Uh, talking with me about her art. So love Shanoa. All right. Speaking of the book, uh, for our creativity segment, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about reading different translations of the mm. book. I happen to have an ESV in front of me right now. You uh -huh. have a CSB. I have a CSB. Uh, do, right? you, do you always read the same version? Uh not not really. I do believe that you should have one Bible that's your Bible. Okay. You know, people have four or five different Bibles and they're spread out. Yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't think that's necessarily a very good thing. I think you should read different translations, but I think you need to have one okay. that's your Bible that you underline and you keep your notes in and that sort of thing. So right. this is my this is my the CSB. Bible. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, you gave me a CSB a few years ago. Yeah. 
And that's what I primarily use, yeah. although I, I do slip back to the ESV once in a while. Yeah. So. Well, I, I like the CSB because I'm an NIV person. Okay, I realize we're talking in acronyms here. Sure, in New International <laughs> Version. I was I was just sort of coming into into sort of biblical literacy as the NIV was coming out a book at a time, and so I think in biblically in NIV. Yeah. I have friends who you know, older friends who think in King James because that was the Bible they had and they read their whole lives, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I do think, um, well, for example, when when I read mostly in the Gospels in NIV. If you stop me, I can tell you what the next verse is going to say because mm. it's in my head. Mm-hmm. I don't have—I'm not claiming to have it all memorized, mm-hmm. but I'm that familiar with it. Right. And um, I don't think you should ever think you know what the Bible is about to say. Okay. I—I uh, I use this example: the the times when I fail miserably in listening to my wife when we're speaking. It's because I, I know what she's going to say, right? I think I know what she's going to say. And when you start listening in that way, you're not really listening anymore. So it's over-familiarity is yeah. the problem. Yeah, it's yeah. over-familiarity. And one of the things I like about CSB, it's just different enough. It's a very accurate translation. It's based on a lot of new manuscript evidence, and uh, the, the, the academic part of it is, is there. Uh, but it's just different uh, enough. I have trouble reading it sometimes out loud because— Again, mm-hmm. I have NIV in my mm-hmm. head, and uh, I think that's a good thing. I think it's it, there's a freshness about having a new translation, a translation you're not used to. Yeah, it spurs the biblical use of the imagination. It really does, and it makes you listen to the text in a new way. And I appreciate that, Michael. Thank you. We are coming to the halfway point of our session now, and we hope you'll send us your reaction. You can email your comments to in the studio at michaelcard.com or find us on Twitter when you search for Michael Card. And be sure to look for Michael's new book and CD project. Online, you'll learn more about the book titled Inexpressible and the companion CD to the kindness of God. Find these at michaelcard.com. Let others know about your experience listening and write a review. They can always subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Google Play. Now, coming up in the second half, we'll talk with Nancy Guthrie about grief and God's purposes in our suffering. A biblically-based discussion next here in the studio with Michael Card. We hope you'll join us for next week's session in the studio with Michael Card. This classic edition will feature a conversation with Pastor Hewlett Sawyers on the topic of slavery in the book of Daniel. And then we'll go on location to an Empty Hands Fellowship community development project in Franklin's Hard Bargain neighborhood. Along the way, we'll hear several songs by Michael. Watch for the post and share this podcast link with a friend. Subscribe when you search for Michael Card in iTunes or Google Play. Back in the studio, Michael, I'd love to hear from listeners. I really do encourage people to write to us. It encourages us to know that you're listening and and benefiting from our efforts here in the studio. And it helps us to shape the program in a way that will help be more helpful to to the listeners. True, true. Uh, we do have an outline that we follow here, uh, community, commentary, creativity. We've done that since the beginning of this, yeah. way back when, when Long we first started recording. We did that for 12 years. Many years ago, yeah. low these many years ago, yes. but it's uh, it's proven uh, to be a, uh, a good layout. Yeah, I think you were just out of high school. I was, yeah, yeah. I was very young, very yeah. young. Joe Carlson's always been our producer. He's on the other side of the glass right now, so yes. we need to give Joe credit for that, uh, Absolutely. that outline. So. Uh, let's talk about how we're going to end the program coming up in a few minutes. Then we'll back up and talk about what's next. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're going back to Israel. We're going to be in a little little uh, village called Taipei, which is a Christian village on the West Bank, and we like to take our groups there because there is a a house there that uh, is built uh, in the same way a first century Jewish home would be built, and by that I mean it's built over a cave. Uh, and and upstairs it has what's called a cataluma, uh, the 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 guest room, hmm. and so when you go to this house, you immediately understand uh, the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, and the cataluma, the guest room, the guest room, which has been mistranslated in. They, we don't have ends in Judaism, right? <laughs> the, so the guest room is full. So you, you're going to have to go down underneath the house. Which is a, the cave, the where, stable, where stable, where where the animals are kept at night. The animals that are vulnerable are kept at night, 
And when you see this, it makes perfect sense. So, uh, yeah, we were at this little house. And, well, we were actually at the church next door to the house. There's a beautiful church there. And uh, and uh, we had a little uh, devotional time there with our group. Yeah, and we're going to hear you read Psalm 23 Yes, uh, in that location. Yeah. That's coming up in a few minutes as we end right. uh, this week's edition of In the Studio. So I just wanted to give our listeners a heads up about what, what was coming. Right, but next we have... Nancy Guthrie will be yeah. with us in just a moment. After you sing a song, I want to talk about the song for a moment, okay. Older Than the Rain. Uh-huh. Well, it, it's a it's an appropriate song to play before Nancy uh, speaks because part of her ministry has been to engage with uh, people at, at the level of their suffering. Uh, she and her husband do retreats with couples who have lost children mm-hmm. as as they have lost children. And, uh, and so the, the big question is, you know, what do you do with your pain? Um, well, you wrote a whole book on lament. Yeah, I did. I did, and uh, and and I'm still asking, trying to ask better questions, and and uh, and try to understand what what tears mean, and where do they come from, and that's what this song is about, older than the rain. And uh, um, at some point, I don't remember exactly when this idea came, but uh, uh, I was I was thinking about the flood, and. The, the flood in the garden. Well, clearly, the garden happened before the flood did. Mm-hmm. But if you read uh, the passage on in Genesis on the flood, you find out that that's the first time it had ever rained. Before that, there was a mist that came up from the earth that watered the never, earth. Yeah, never, never knew that. No, it had never rained. So uh, the idea is that Adam and Eve wept before it had ever rained. So teardrops, oh, okay. teardrops are older than raindrops. Huh. Tears are more fundamental and happen first in the in the earth. So pain and suffering are older. Right, right. And so uh, the 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 song is built around the line: uh, human tears uh, are older than the rain. In Eden, the darkened still, unwet by all the tears of the sky. Within the grip of that disobedient bite came all the tears the fallen world would cry. The unwelcomed wetness they never had felt coursed down their fallen faces in surprise. The only life they ever knew was a clear and fallen sky For he had not intended that we should ever need to cry Falling tears from fallen eyes Our faces with an unaccustomed stain We were driven from the garden beneath the cloudless sky For human tears are older than the rain Human tears are older than the rain From that place of presence and peace To stumble all alone This long lamenting race From the deepest, darkest shadows He joins us in this place And we recognize our bitter tears Upon His perfect face Falling tears from fallen eyes Our faces with an unaccustomed stain We were driven from the garden Beneath a cloudless sky For human tears are older than the rain Human tears are older than the rain
Such a beautiful and meaningful song, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Older Than the Rain. Hey, we've been uh, talking here in the studio. We have a guest who's going to join us now, Nancy Guthrie. We've been talking. It's been many years since Nancy was first with us on this program. Yeah, I think if anybody will understand the idea that teardrops are older than raindrops, uh, it'll be Nancy. Right. Nancy, welcome. Oh, so good to be with you, Wayne and Michael. (laughs) Yeah. You and Michael live so close, and here we are talking on the phone I with know. you. I but... know. <laughs> There's something very wrong about that. Yes. I'm glad to be talking to you on the phone at least. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's hard to keep up with uh, with all your books. I didn't even know this <laughs> this latest one was out, uh, even better than Eden. So uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing uh, what's behind this book. And we're glad to have you on this uh, newer edition of In the Studio, since we're recording new material now and having you back. So thank you. And David's doing okay? He's terrific. Thank you. How are the conferences going? Uh, are you talking about our weekend retreats yeah. we host for couples? Yeah. Yeah, we host weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. We started those in 2009, and we just had our 34th retreat oh, wow. a couple of weeks ago. It's 11 couples who have lost children and us for the weekend out in a 12-bedroom lodge outside Ashland City. And we share our stories and pray for each other and um, open up God's Word to try to hear Him speak into this sorrow. Uh And it's interesting. You know, people think about us heading off on these weekends. It sounds like the most miserable thing in the world to go spend the weekend with 12 sets of strangers who all have so much sorrow, Mm -hmm. but it is actually the sweetest, most beautiful thing, because the Lord just um, knits our hearts together so quickly, because you're in this group of people who get you and get your experience, and people are so hungry to experience the Lord and, and and come to some clarity in, in their circumstances that are so confusing. And He is so good to meet us and show Himself to us. And it's just an incredible privilege to get to do that. I don't know anything else like this. It, it, it's been fun to follow it through the years and see how God has used you and David, Nancy. Has it really been 20 years since baby Hope died? Uh, 20 years since she was born. Her birthday oh, her born. was last okay. week. She oh, okay. would have been 20. Yeah. My goodness. and That's, that's kind of chokes me up. Yeah, I can imagine why. And and the the fact that the circumstances of your life have have really shaped who you are in so many ways and led yeah. to so much uh, help that you've given so many people through your books and, and speaking, Nancy. Just say a word about that. I mean, uh, you, yeah. you, you, it was nothing you welcomed into your life, but God's using it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, that most people, when we go through an incredible loss, like David and I did when we lost our daughter Hope, and then later our son Gabriel, who had the same uh, fatal disorder. I think when that happens, you kind of have a choice. You, you've got all these questions, and you have the choice: Am I? Am are my, all of my questions and my frustration and disappointment and maybe even anger? Am I going to use that as an excuse to turn away from Him, or am I going to use it as an opportunity to turn toward Him? to say, you are all I've got in all of this, and if I'm ever going to have joy again, if there's ever going to be healing in my life, if I'm ever going to come to peace, I know it's only going to come through you, and so you have to meet me here. And as I open up your word, I need you to speak to me. I need you to illumine me, give me understanding, give me comfort, and... I feel like over these years, that decision to turn toward God, to ask Him to reveal Himself to me, has certainly, uh, it's paid off in my own life. It's paid off in in ministry to others, for which I am just incredibly grateful. But what you've learned has come through struggle and pain. Absolutely. Um, But its vehicle has been the Word of God. Um, you know, I think sometimes, sometimes we will say to people in the midst of sorrow, you know, are you reading your Bible? And I I think sometimes actually the Bible, because of the way it's put together, isn't necessarily a comforting book. I mean, if you think about it, let's say, you know, you're going through something difficult and you want some comfort and, you know, you open up to an epistle that has all of these regulations about how the church is run, or you open up to a historical book and you're reading about a battle and you think to myself, well, this has nothing to do with me. And so Mm -hmm. 
what that requires is that we go much deeper in the Bible to understand the larger story of the Bible. And I would say to you guys, Wayne and Michael, that was how the Bible became a comforting book. I mean, whenever, when anybody is suffering, they all have the same question, and you guys know what it is. Yep. Why? Why? Mm-hmm. And so as I went on a search for an answer to that question, why? You, you, many people look for it in their circumstances. They look around and they, they, they say, I want to see something that's happening in the world or in my life that I could say this is why that happened. Or it's a philosophical search, like, uh, you know, got to understand how the world works. My search became a biblical search. And I found the answer to the question why in Genesis 3.15 most profoundly. Mm. In Genesis 3.15 is after Adam and Eve have sinned. And God comes, and he curses the serpent. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. But then he gets very particular about an offspring. He will bruise your head. Mm -hmm. You will crush his heel. And in that passage in Genesis 3, see the impact that sin had on this world. Sin... We read a couple of verses later that he he cursed the ground. Sin has infected, infiltrated everything in the world. And I would say to you, sins, the curse of sin has infected this world so much, it has impacted even my genetic code. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And so if you ask me why I've had two children, because the world is so deeply broken because of the impact of sin on all creation. Mm-hmm. But see, in Genesis 3.15 there, I not only find this answer to the question why, I find it the announcement of hope. Mm-hmm. The hope to hold on to is right there at the beginning of the Bible, where we read that, um, that this one offspring is going to bruise or crush the head of evil, this one who has brought sin and death into the world. So here's this announcement. This one offspring is going to come, and he's going to deal with the evil and the sin and the death that Satan's impact on humanity has brought into this world. And that changed my understanding of the Bible. That means the whole of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament, is about watching and waiting for that person. And the New Testament is observing what that one has done. Uh, We we read in the epistles, in Hebrews, I think, that he came to... uh, to, bring, to put to death the devil. Mm-hmm. And so this helps us understand what the Bible's about, and this is what brings comfort, is that the brokenness of this world is not going to be the way it's going to be forever. Mm-hmm. But one day, um, blessing is going to flow far as the curse is found, mm-hmm. as we sing in, in Joy to the World. Mm-hmm. And so I found in the Bible both the answer to the question why, as well as hope to hold on to Excellent. in the darkest of times. Now, I've, I've never heard uh, an answer to the why question, because I've always taught, for, and this is from the book of Job, that the biblical answer is don't ask that question. <laughs> but that's, that's, a real, <laughs> that's a really good answer. That's a really good answer. Well, I think both that, but I also think when we ask the question, when I think about how many times in the Bible, that we, especially when you get into uh, the New Testament, you hear over and over, this has happened so that, I mean, if you look up so that, it's like the Bible does keep giving us answers to the question why. Like, you know, Paul, when he talks about some of his struggles, he says, this happened so that I would depend on God, not mm. myself. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an answer to the question why. Or um, when James said, uh, these things have come upon you, basically, to make you spiritually mature. Oh, there's an answer to the question why. Mm -hmm. God does have good purposes in the suffering in our life. He intends to accomplish some very good things in our lives to make us more mature. Or think about John 15. He's pruning us. Why? To make us more fruitful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or in Hebrews 12, he's disciplining us for a harvest of righteousness. So I I think the answers to questions why really are there in the scriptures. They're just not always the way we want the answers to come. We want God to write in the sky and give us a specific personal answer. This is why I allowed this to happen to you at this time in this way. And I think we have to receive 
what he does give us in terms of scriptural answers to that question. Mm. Well, you've learned these things through the crucible. It's different from just studying them academically, Nancy, and you, you bring them to us so well in your books. By the way, I don't want too much time to get by here without mentioning the latest book, Even Better Than Eden is the title, and it's uh, the story of God's plan for the new creation. Yes. What I do in that book is I basically trace the story of the Bible nine times, uh, kind of looking at it from different angles. You know, when you look at a piece of artwork, if you know how to do that, I'm not much of an art connoisseur, but my understanding is you're supposed to look at it from all different angles to really take in the beauty of it. And in a sense, I think that's the case with the story we're being told in the Bible. We're able to look at the beauty and sufficiency and necessity of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I do it from nine different angles. I could do it from many more. Uh, But, you know, for example, the story of the wilderness, we begin with a garden set in the midst of the wilderness of the world. But then, of course, Adam and Eve are, after they sin, are ejected into the wilderness that surrounds the garden. We say, God, bring a people to himself. What happens? They go through the wilderness for 40 years, but they're brought into this land that's a little land of milk and honey. It's like a new Eden. But then, of course, they are exiled because of their sin. Mm -hmm. But then we have this one who shows up, and it's so fascinating how John says uh, he's he's a voice crying in the wilderness wilderness Mm -hmm. to make a way for this king to come. And here comes Jesus, and he, he goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted. He goes at the very end of his ministries in a garden where he's tempted even more in regard to the cross. But then what happens? He is buried in a garden. And on that resurrection morning, Mary, they, they go, she goes to the tomb. And she, she's confused because she sees this one and she, it says, supposing him to be the gardener. The gardener. <laughs> and of course he was. He is the gardener. This is the dawn of the new creation. And the gardener is up at the crack of this dawn. And he is extending the new creation into the wilderness of this world. Mm. And the, our hope of the gospel is that one day you and I are going to finally escape the wilderness of this world. Because that's where we live right now, in the wilderness, where mm. there's still thorns that are thorns in the flesh for us, and yet the day is coming. We're going to enter into what's kind of a, when we look at it in Revelation 22, it's kind of a new garden city paradise. Mm -hmm. And the words used to describe it are so similar to what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. But there's going to be a difference in this garden. No evil is ever going to enter into it. No sin is ever going to diminish it. And this is going to be a garden where we're going to feed on the tree of life that's now expanded. There's 12 kind of fruits and a new crop of fruit every month. And <laughs> we're going to live in this abundant garden forever. I mean, is that not a great story? <laughs> mm, absolutely. <laughs> How can you not look forward to that, huh? Absolutely. All right. Well, Nancy, thank you so much. Um, and for people who want to know about the retreats that you mentioned earlier for grieving families, uh, where do they go for that information? Just go to nancyguthrie.com. NancyGuthrie.com, and you'll see a uh, link there for respite retreats. All right. And as we mentioned earlier, the the latest book is Even Better Than Eden, Nine Ways the Bible Story Changes Everything About Your Story. And Nancy Guthrie has written many other books as well. So I hope it's not another few years before we get to talk with you again, Nancy. Well, I do too. You guys just call me anytime. All right. (laughs) And Michael, we talked earlier about, there's so many of your songs that we could play here that would be appropriate. I mean, I'm thinking of In the Wilderness and The New Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. all these songs. But as we said earlier, we want to hear you uh, read uh, Psalm 23 at the church in the West Bank. And then we'll ask you to sing, Never Will I Leave You. So, Nancy, once again, thank you. God bless you and David. We'll talk again. Thank you so much. All right. Here's Michael Card. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through deep darkness, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Shouldness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
fear That's when I'm near Your soul's security Oh, when will you believe That never will I leave you That something I'll never Never will I leave you Never will I leave you That's his promise to us. Michael, why don't we close and can I ask you to pray for listeners? Absolutely. Lord Jesus, we come to you as as your children who need to be made wise by your word. And we we read that you will never leave us, that you'll never forsake us, and that's our hope. Uh, We read that you're the good shepherd and that we are, uh, as your sheep, we're able to recognize your voice. So we ask ask now for the sensitivity to hear your voice. We... uh, we ask you to never leave us, to never forsake us. We ask you for ser- we ask you to search for us and find us in the wilderness because that's where we are. And uh, we realize, in light of your word, that without your voice, we are going to be lost. So speak to us and give us ears to hear, and be our God in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. This has been a stirring hour in the Word of God with Michael and Nancy today. We're trusting that God is using these conversations to guide your thinking as a follower of Christ. We hope you'll send us your story how this is happening for you. We look forward to reading your reactions and questions about Michael's teaching. You can reach us several ways. Send your email to inthestudio at michaelcard.com or find us on Twitter or Facebook when you search for Michael Card. We're excited about Michael's new book and CD. Find out how to order a copy of the book, Inexpressible, and the companion CD, To the Kindness of God. Look for these when you stop by michaelcard.com. Again, michaelcard.com. And tell a friend about what you've discovered here in the studio. They can subscribe by searching for Michael Card in iTunes or Google Play. Now for all of us on the team, Ron Davis, Lauren Kosky, Ashley Smith, Lance Mansfield, Jeff Jones, and of course our producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Please join us again next week here in the studio with Michael Card.